Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great love that you demonstrated in sending your Son. That love is something that we ought to consider, something we need to remember, something we need your help to even understand the depths of. And it is something that deserves and demands our worship and our praise for all eternity. Lord, our simple request as we come to your word is that you would work in our hearts and stir up within us a deeper love for Christ. As we reflect on that love and what that love has accomplished, may our hearts burn this morning with love for Christ, a desire to honor him, a desire to know him, to know the one who laid his life down for us, for sinners. We praise you, Lord Jesus, and thank you for your love and ask your help now. We ask for the help and the presence of your spirit to see, to understand, and to love you as we ought. Amen. Our text for this morning's sermon will be Luke chapter 2, verse 21 through 52. You can open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. Luke's Gospel opens up by recording for us the events of Jesus' birth. It goes all the way back to the beginning, which is fitting. But Luke is giving us more than just an orderly account of historical details. It's not less than that, but he's doing something more. He told Theophilus in the opening words of this gospel that what Theophilus held in his hands in this record of Jesus' life is a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. The things that have been accomplished. That little word accomplished indicates that there is a reason, there is a plan, there is a purpose behind the coming of Jesus. Everything that happened in his life This is not just a historical record of things that happened. It's things that happened for a reason, which means that it's not enough for us, it's not enough for Theophilus, the first reader, to to simply know that Jesus was born. We need to understand why. We need to understand why. And the good news is we don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess because Luke is eager to show us why Jesus came. He is eager to reveal to us, to confirm to us, not only the identity of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, but also the mission of Jesus Christ, that he came to save us. Following the account of Jesus' birth, Luke records several different events from Jesus' childhood, events that reveal to us and confirm for us the mission of Christ. They highlight the purpose for which he came. Jesus did not just come to be a good example for us, although he is that. Jesus did not simply come to be a teacher, although he was the best teacher, the the clearest teacher, the most accurate teacher, the most authoritative teacher that has ever lived. Jesus didn't simply come to heal the sick and help the needy, although he did. He cared for them. He touched the lepers. He healed the lame. Jesus came not simply to be a political revolutionary or a cultural reformer, as much as people wanted him to be that. No, Jesus came to save sinners through his sacrificial death. That is why he came. He came to accomplish a mission, a mission of redemption. As we read Luke's gospel, this mission must be understood. This is not just for Luke chapter 2. This will take us through the rest of the book. It's a theme that runs from the cradle to the cross. And it's ever-present, 
under the surface at every point in this story. And sometimes it's not really so under the surface. It's right in our face. And today I want to show you in the text we will look at this morning five indicators of this redemptive mission. Uh, We're going to cover really 12 years of Jesus' life in, in one stretch And what we see in the different um, pieces that Luke draws out from Jesus' early years is that Jesus came to save us. That is why he came. That is his mission. So five indicators that, that point us to this mission. And the first we find in verse 21, that his mission is expressed very simply in his name. Following the birth of Jesus... We see in verse 21 that at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. His mission, his purpose is expressed in his name. Circumcision on the eighth day was more than just a tradition uh, for faithful Jews. We need to understand that what Joseph and Mary are doing here is really an expression of faith, an expression of faith in God's promise to Abraham. A promise that blessing would come to Abraham and his descendants and through those descendants to all the families of the earth. It was an expression of faith in that promise and an expression of obedience to God's law. In Genesis chapter 17, God told Abraham that all the males in his household were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Later, this command was was codified in the Mosaic Law, Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. So so Jesus' parents are obeying the law. They're demonstrating that they believe in this promise. Jesus was born to faithful parents, born, as Galatians says, under the law. Jesus would later say in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But more than the circumcision here on the eighth day, Luke is focusing on the naming of Jesus. While many of us probably pick names long before our babies are born, although some of you guys like to wait around a couple days in the hospital before settling on a name, uh, often in Jewish culture, they would, they would officially land on that name on the eighth day around the time of circumcision. And Luke focuses here on the naming of Jesus. And just like with the, the birth of John the Baptist and just like with his name, An angel had appeared and announced this surprising birth to Mary and to Joseph and had given them divine instruction as to what they should name the child. It wasn't just their decision to make. Matthew records this angelic message that was given to Joseph. Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. You will call his name Jesus for this reason, because of this reality that he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is born to save. He is to be a savior. Many people have born this name, and many people still do. Um, It's the name Joshua, or the name Jesus, if you're a Spanish speaker. A lot of people have that name, even some people in this room. But this Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, is the only Savior. He is the one who will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. It's a common name. Uh, It was one that was made famous by Moses' successor, the one who led Israel into the promised land, led them on the conquest. There was also a famous high priest of Israel named Joshua. You can read about him in Haggai and Zechariah. And it's really a combination name. It's, it's a name that means the Lord saves. Uh, 
uh, the name Yahweh, the name of the Lord. If you shorten that to Yah, then you take the verb Shua, which means to save. You put those together. Yahshua or Joshua means the Lord saves. You will call his name Jesus, Joshua, because he will save his people from their sins. The divine choosing of this name indicates a divine purpose. It signifies Jesus' mission. This is why he came. I was reading uh, this past week one of my favorite old dead guys. His name is J.C. Ryle. You should always read old dead guys. They never post anything weird on the internet. You don't have to backtrack later, you know, once they kind of go off course. Um, J.C. Ryle was a faithful pastor uh, who ministered centuries before we were born. And he pointed out this really interesting insight that this name Jesus speaks to what he is as a savior, but Jesus is many things. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. Jesus is the king. Uh, Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is the victor. There are a number of things. Jesus is the judge. He could have gone by a name that signified any of those roles, and all of them would have been accurate and true. But consider this, that Jesus desires to be known primarily, first and foremost, as Savior. Think about that. Uh, Many of you have been believers or you've been around the church for a number of years. You know that Jesus came to save. This is not new. But consider that Jesus wants to be known as a Savior so that every time we speak his name, we are declaring this truth that the Lord saves and that Jesus is that Savior. He wants to be known as Savior by those who feel the burden of guilt and shame. Jesus wants to be known as Savior by those who suffer, those who deal with grief and loss and difficulty and trials. Jesus wants to be known as a Savior by those who feel weak, those who feel overwhelmed by the challenges of life. He wants to be known as a Savior. This is his mission, and every time we speak his name, we address him as Savior. This mission of salvation, this purpose, is why he came, and his mission is expressed in his name. That's the first indicator of his mission. But there's a second. Not only does, is his mission expressed in his name, but secondly, his mission is indicated at his dedication. Look in verse 22 through 24. We see the dedication of Jesus at the temple. It says, when the time came for their purification... According to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I think we see the mission of Jesus indicated here at his dedication. Again, his parents are faithfully obeying God's law, which means they would have traveled to Jerusalem a number of weeks after Jesus was born. And they went to Jerusalem. They went specifically to the temple for two reasons. First, the process of childbirth for a woman would make her ceremonially unclean. And so according to the law of Moses, she was to come and offer a sin offering And then secondly, a burnt offering. And the fact that they used two birds here shows that that Joseph and Mary were not financially well off. Typically, you would offer a bird and a lamb, but those who found it hard to afford uh, a lamb were able to offer a bird. 
So this doesn't mean that they were impoverished, that they suffered abject poverty, that they were, you know, starving and on the edge of society, but it means that they were lower income and they lived hand to mouth. And so they, they brought two birds to make this sacrifice. So they would have come to offer this purification sacrifice. It was necessary for Mary. But the other reason they came was because the firstborn son of every Jewish family was to be dedicated symbolically to the Lord. This comes from Exodus chapter 13. If you remember following the Passover, um, or at Passover, they were given this instruction. The final plague of Egypt was the death of the firstborn. The firstborn of every household was killed. But those households that in faith applied the lamb's blood to the doorpost, the, the life of that firstborn son would be spared. And to help commemorate this, um, they were given instructions to dedicate the firstborn to the Lord from, from that time forward. Exodus 13.2 says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. The Lord is saying, yes, I did not take the life of your firstborn son. I recognize the sacrifice of the lamb in his place, but his life does belong to me. That's what this, this ritual was to indicate. So they were to consecrate them to the Lord. To be consecrated is literally to be holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. And Luke pulls that out. As it is written, verse 23, in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be consecrated, shall be called holy to the Lord. To be holy to the Lord is to be set apart. Joseph and Mary, think about this, were acknowledging that day at the temple that their son belonged to God, that their son was to be devoted to serving God. Jesus was set apart, dedicated to the Lord as a firstborn son. But when we understand who Jesus really is, this takes on an even greater significance. Jesus is holy to the Lord. He is kadosh le'adonai, as they would have said, in a unique way. He's more than a firstborn son of Israel. He's the only begotten son of God. And he is truly holy in a singular way. Jesus is holy in the sense of being completely sinless. If you look back at chapter 1, Verse 35, as the angel explains to Mary how she would come to be with child, the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus is pure. Jesus would be the Lamb without blemish and without spot. He is uniquely holy to the Lord. Only Jesus is holy in this sense. But he's also holy in the sense that he's dedicated to God's purpose. He's holy in the sense that he is set apart to carrying out a unique mission. Holiness has the idea of uniqueness. And Jesus is truly unique in his mission. We are all called to serve the Lord. We are all called to do the Father's will. But only Jesus carries out this mission of redemption. Only he can serve the Lord in this way. He would be, according to chapter 1, verse 11, the Savior, Christ the Lord. Only Jesus can save. And Jesus would be fully devoted to carrying out this mission of salvation. That he is devoted to doing the Father's will 
would be something that's kind of hard for Joseph and Mary to, to learn and to get their head around, as we'll see later when Jesus is 12 years old at the temple. And it would have been something that later he would have to teach his disciples. They didn't understand the full uh, truth of this mission. John chapter 4, for example, they try to bring him food, and he says, I have food that you do not know about. And they're trying to figure out, wait, did he get a snack from somebody else? How did that happen? And he said, my food is to do the will of my Father. Jesus knew that he was set apart, devoted to serving the Lord. In John chapter 6, verse 38, he told them, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. To do the Father's will would take him all the way to the cross. Later on in Luke's gospel in chapter 22, you're probably familiar with the story as Jesus labors in prayer and agony in the garden. And he prays, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. He knew that his mission would take him to the cross. But he concluded that prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is devoted to doing the will of his Father. Luke underscores this fact that Jesus has been set apart for this work from his very birth. As his, as his parents obey the law of God, Jesus is being dedicated to say that he is holy to the Lord. We see this mission in his name. We see this mission in the dedication at the temple. It's all here at his birth. And all of this is building an expectation, building an expectation of what this child will be and what he will do and what will this mission look like. And all of this expectation is embodied and really fleshed out in the life of a man named Simeon. We've seen that his mission is expressed in his name. It's indicated at his dedication. But there's a third indicator of Christ's mission, and we see this in verses 25 through 35. And his mission is identified by the prophetic word. As Simeon speaks, his prophetic word identifies Jesus as the one who will carry out God's mission of salvation. Look in verse 25. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Imagine this, if you will, as this couple is bringing in their son. This man intercepts them as they're on their way to offer these sacrifices. And it's a man named Simeon that Luke tells us was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This idea of consolation or, or this idea of comfort, you could call it is really a strong theme that's all throughout uh, the book of Isaiah. And I'll just draw your attention to Isaiah chapter 40, one such instance. Listen to this, these several verses from Isaiah 40. Starting in verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people. That's that idea of consolation. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned 
that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That sounds like John the Baptist's message, doesn't it? Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The prophet Isaiah records for us this promise of comfort, a promise of forgiveness, a promise of restoration, a promise of glory being revealed in the sight of all. That's what God had promised, and that's what Simeon is waiting for. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. But there's another character in the scene, a character, who, a character that is really responsible for everything that happens next. And that character is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned no less than three times in these few short verses. We see this in verse 25. It says that this man, the Holy Spirit was upon him at the end of verse 25. It had been revealed to him, verse 26, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then he comes in the Spirit into the temple, verse 27. So yes, Simeon is a devout man. He is upright and and devout. He is acting in faith. But more than that, Simeon is being sovereignly guided by the Holy Spirit to know and to see and to understand and identify what's happening, to recognize Jesus as the Christ, as the consolation of Israel. And then the Holy Spirit fills him to speak. Notice what Simeon says. He takes, verse 28, Jesus up in his arms and he blesses God and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Simeon has been waiting for this. The Lord had promised him he would see the Savior and now that he sees Jesus, he is so moved by the sight of Jesus, he truly feels his life is complete, that he can die a happy man. Because he knows that God is at work, that God is keeping his promises. Not just the personal promise that he would see the Messiah, but that he would bring salvation for Israel through his Christ. He identifies Jesus as salvation. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus, the Lord saves, the one dedicated to bringing about God's purposes. He says, I have seen the Lord's salvation. Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission flows towards this idea of salvation. He says it's a salvation that God has prepared. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Surely God has prepared Jesus for this moment, orchestrating world events, lining up empires and censuses and governors and birthplaces to bring about the fulfillment of his promise causing a virgin to conceive in her womb. God has prepared this salvation. And this salvation is a light for the Gentiles. Look at what he says in verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. John chapter 1, verse 9, says that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
This is a metaphor for salvation, a, a beautiful description of who and what Jesus is, that those who dwell in the land of darkness, upon them light has shined. Jesus would later say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Simeon declares as he sees Jesus that this salvation will mean light to those who are far off, light to those who dwell in darkness. Salvation not just for Israel, but for people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This salvation is not only light for the Gentiles, but he drills deeper into this beautiful imagery and says that he is glory for your people, Israel. Verse 32, glory. Jesus is not just light. He is the revelation of the glory of God. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the very glory of God, wrapped in human flesh. And Simeon says, I can die a happy man because I see your salvation. I see the light of the world. I see the glory of God. And it is glory specifically for Israel. Glory to your people Israel. If I could quote from Isaiah one more time. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The coming of Jesus is the coming of the glory of God, and it is glory to Israel. Israel's great privilege is that through her comes the Messiah. And for any of us to experience salvation means we have to come to Israel's Messiah. That is glory for Israel, that she would have the privilege of being the delivery vehicle for the salvation of the world, that through her would come the Messiah, who would be the glory of God to which all the nations will come for salvation, and that he will be the one to restore Israel. And we'll touch on that point in a few moments. But they are marveling at this as Simeon declares that Jesus is salvation. He is the light of the world. He is the glory of God. They marvel at this. Verse 33. They marvel at what was said about him. And as they marvel, Simeon turns and he speaks now to them. He's been blessing God. He's been praising God that he gets to see the Messiah. But now he speaks to Joseph and Mary and he says some sobering words. Verse 34. Simeon blessed them. And said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. These words to Joseph and Mary indicate that their son's life and their son's impact, as joyful as Simeon was in that moment, that his life would not all be joy and celebration. In these words of Simeon, we find the first hint that the Messiah would suffer and that there would actually be conflict and division at his coming. He says that this son, this child, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Jesus, 
he tells them, will be a polarizing figure. He will be divisive even. And he still is today. Nothing's changed. Some people stumble over Christ. They are offended at his authority, offended at his teaching, offended at his claim to be the son of God who should be rightly worshipped and feared. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 14, again, drawing from Isaiah's prophecies, says that the Lord will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, to both the, the northern tribes, the ten, and the southern two tribes in Judah. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Although Jesus is Israel's Messiah, not everybody would receive him as such. Many will stumble upon him. This idea of a stumbling block and a stone of offense is an image that the Old Testament uses frequently and the New Testament picks it up and uses it often as well. But some, Simeon says, will rise to faith and life and the salvation that Jesus provides. The coming of Christ will mean joy and, and, and lifting out of slavery, lifting them out of darkness, lifting them out of death. He is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel. Psalm 147 verse 6 says, The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. That's the impact that Jesus' coming will have. And Simeon, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows that Jesus will elevate the outcasts. He will lift up the broken. He will exalt the humble and the repentant. But the proud and the rebellious and the hard-hearted will be laid low. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Simeon continues, and for a sign that is opposed. A sign that is opposed. We've seen several signs already in Luke's gospel. When the angel told Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a child even in their old age, he said, how will I know this? He was a little skeptical. The angel said, well, you're not going to be able to speak or hear for the next nine months. That's how you will know. That's the sign. It was disciplinary in nature. He also gave a sign, the angel did, to Mary. He said that this will be a sign for you. Your relative Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age. Mary hurriedly went and saw, sure enough, Elizabeth's pregnant, which was a sign for her, that yes, God is at work, just like Zechariah's deafness and muteness was a sign that yes, God was at work. When the angels told the shepherds that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, he gave them a sign. He said, you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. When they went and found this unusual sight, a newborn baby in a feeding trough, they knew, just like Mary knew, and just like Zechariah knew, they knew based on this sign that God is at work, that God is fulfilling his promise, that God's word, his promise, is true. Simeon tells Joseph and Mary that their son is appointed for the rising and the fall of many in Israel and to be a sign that is opposed. Jesus' entire life Every aspect of his ministry would be a sign. 
a sign that God was at work and a sign that God's word is true. From his birth to his miracles to his teaching to his death to his resurrection, every bit of it proved that God is at work and that God's word is true. The Messiah had come. The kingdom was at hand. God himself was among them and the life and the ministry and the miracles of Jesus. All of that is a sign. But this sign, Simeon says, will be opposed. Just like Isaiah 53 says, he would be despised and rejected. The religious leaders would resent his popularity. They would resist the working of God. They would reject the salvation that God was providing through Christ. Those religious leaders, as we'll see later on in Luke's gospel, will try to trick Jesus. They will try to trap Jesus. They will smear his reputation, accusing him of being born from fornication. They will accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. He will be betrayed by a friend. He will be framed by the Pharisees. He will be abused by the Romans. And all of this opposition ultimately comes from the devil himself, who has long been at war with God. So Simeon says that your son is a sign that God is at work and that God's word is true, but it's a sign that will be opposed. And much of this will be hard for Mary. It will be hard for her. It says in verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. It would be hard for her to see that her son throughout his life would have no place to lay his head. It would be hard for her to see him falsely accused. It would be hard for her to see even her own family divided over Jesus as his own brothers did not believe in him before the resurrection. But the ultimate grief, the sword that would pierce her own soul would be his crucifixion. It's interesting here, the Greek word for sword, they had all sorts of different swords, Um, It was not the short, uh, dagger-like sword that would be often carried on the hip. This was a long, um, very large Roman sword, the double-edged sword, indicating that her pain and her grief would be severe. And he says this to Mary. Why does he say it to Mary and not to Joseph? Well, it appears that Joseph is probably dead before Jesus starts his public ministry which means Joseph would not live to see all of this hardship that Jesus would go through, but Mary would see it all. Mary would have to bury her son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths. She would also be there when he was wrapped for his burial. A sign that is opposed. A soul will pierce through your own soul also. Verse 35 concludes with this, Simeon's final word to her so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The result of all of this is that the true nature of man will be exposed as they come into contact with Jesus. You see, how someone responds to Jesus, whether in that day or today, either rising or falling, either embracing him or stumbling over him, either receiving him or rejecting him, that shows the true nature of your spiritual condition. In John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's why some of you don't like to sit through these sermons. You don't like the light, but your parents make you come. Or your wife makes you come. Or whoever it is that made you come. I don't know who made you come. That's why some of your neighbors don't want to come to church when you invite them. That's why some of your relatives get very uncomfortable and defensive when you try to talk about the gospel with them. When people come face to face with Christ and the truth of Christ, the claims of Christ, the gospel of Christ, it exposes the thoughts that are in their heart. It shows whether they love the darkness or whether they love the light. The response to Jesus shows which side you are really on. Some will resist the word, some will reject the work of Jesus, but some are seeking salvation, and some who seek it will find it in Christ. They will find salvation in Jesus. It shows what's in the heart. The encounter with Simeon in the temple, this faithful, spirit-filled man, it underscores the truth that Jesus is salvation. A salvation that will be rejected and despised by some, A salvation that will be provided only through grief and pain. But a salvation that will bring light to the nations and glory for Israel as some respond in faith. So we've seen that the mission of Jesus is expressed in his name. It's indicated at this dedication. It's identified by the prophetic word. And then fourth, this mission is confirmed by a faithful servant. Look in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem." It's interesting, in the Old Testament law, for something to be established as a legal fact, it had to be confirmed by at least two witnesses. And here, in the temple, the very place where God's presence dwelt, Anna confirms the testimony of Simeon. She's the second witness. Luke describes her as a prophetess, one who, like Simeon, was empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak for God. She's not just a a random somebody. She is someone who has this this open communication with God himself. And so her testimony of who Jesus is is not only her testimony. This is the testimony of God affirming in his own temple that this is my son with whom I am well pleased. The text tells us that she had been married for about seven years, but then her husband died. And she'd been a widow ever since then. Most girls in that day were married in their teens. And she's, at this point, about 84. She's she's probably been a widow for about 60 years. But notice how she spends her time in verse 37. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. This idea of fasting has been described by some as almost almost like a religious protest, saying, God, something's not right, and we're asking you to work. We're asking you to do something. And what was not right with Israel? Well, many of them did not worship God. Many of them were far from him. 
They were still waiting on their Messiah to come and to redeem them and to restore their nation. And so she is fasting and praying. She, like Simeon, is looking for the Christ. And so she comes into the temple at this very hour, which is no accident. She, like Simeon, is guided by the Holy Spirit, and she recognizes what's happening. She hears what Simeon is saying, and she affirms every word of it. She doesn't say, Simeon, are you sure about that? She doesn't say, you crazy old man, you don't really know what you're talking about. No, instead she hears the prophetic word about Jesus, and immediately she does two things. First of all, verse 38, she gives thanks to God. If this child that Simeon is holding, if he is the salvation that the Lord has really prepared in the presence of all peoples, who will be light for the Gentiles and glory for Israel, if that's true, then she has great reason for joy. Great reason for joy. A reason to give thanks to God. Although she is widowed, although she's had a hard life, a lonely life. It appears if she's living in the temple every day that she probably doesn't have children who will care for her. But despite all that she has been through, despite her very old age and all the weaknesses and the limits and the struggles that come with old age, she rejoices and gives thanks because this is the best news that one could hear, that salvation has arrived. That is the best news. So she thanks God. She praises him for keeping his promise and sending the Messiah. But notice what she does then. She gives thanks to God, and then she begins to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She tells the good news that the Messiah has arrived to everyone who will listen. Yes, some will stumble over Jesus. Some will oppose him. But there's others, the text says, who are waiting for this redemption. There are people out there who are seeking, and she goes out to tell them about the Messiah. It's a bit of a rabbit trail, but remember, Luke also writes the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, you have all these people telling the lost about Jesus. You have the gospel being proclaimed in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And I think Luke is already sort of priming the pump for us to see that this message about the Messiah is meant to be proclaimed. It's meant to be told. You see, Simeon and Anna aren't the only ones waiting for the redemption of Israel. There is a faithful remnant, and she is eager to tell them that their Redeemer has arrived. They're waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This word redeem is important. It means to purchase. It's to buy back. And Jesus would indeed redeem Jerusalem and not only Jerusalem, which represented the nation Israel, but also countless Gentile believers. But that raises the question, how will he purchase them? How will this redemption be accomplished? Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The redemption would come through the cross. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Anna's proclamation in the temple that Jesus came to bring redemption, it points us to his mission, one that will include paying a high cost, sacrificing his own life so that the people of God can receive 
and experience and enjoy salvation. Jesus came to save. We see it in his name. We see it in the dedication at the temple. We see it in the prophetic word of Simeon. We see it in the confirmation and and, and the proclamation of Anna. But there's a fifth and final indicator. This mission of Jesus is understood and embraced by Jesus himself. We need to move quickly through this last section, verse 41 through 52. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Luke fast-forwards now from Jesus being an infant to being 12 years old. In Jewish culture, age 13 was coming of age. That's when a boy was considered legally to become a man. So when you're 12 years old, it's time to learn, it's time to prepare, it's time to to get all the things figured out so that you can be a, a faithful citizen in Israel and a faithful follower of Yahweh. So every year, the men were required, the whole family wasn't required, but at least the men were required to go to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Joseph takes his family. This is a teaching moment. He's preparing his son because next year, Jesus will be accountable on his own to appear in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. But this is more than just a boy preparing for manhood. This is more than just a boy learning about the Passover. This is the Messiah preparing for his mission. This is the Lamb of God coming to Jerusalem at Passover to learn and grow in his understanding of the true significance of that sacrifice as the one who would one day be that sacrifice. So uh, following this, in, this full week of being at Jerusalem, and you can imagine Jesus soaking in all the sights and the sounds, observing the sacrifices, watching the priestly duties, learning about it from the, the older men in his family, and even receiving instruction at the temple. Jesus is soaking all of this in. As a boy, he's growing in wisdom and in his understanding of his own role and how all of this fits together. Though Jesus is the omniscient God, remember, he set aside those divine prerogatives to become a man, and he has to learn. What a humbling thing for our God and Savior to have to go through. But at the end of this week, the family packs up and goes, and Jesus is described here as being so engrossed in this teaching from the Old Testament that's going on in the temple that Jesus stays, and they get a whole day down the road before they figure it out. And then it takes them a whole other day to come back to Jerusalem. And then it's on that third day that they finally find him in the temple, 
And, and when they find him, he's being taught. He's sitting among the teachers, verse 46, listening to them and asking questions. Sometimes people tell this story because of some old traditions as if Jesus is doing the teaching. And he will one day, but at this point, he's listening. He's being taught. He's asking questions and very insightful questions, I'm sure. He's sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Often their teaching style would include answering a question with a question. So Jesus is answering questions, asking questions. They're turning it around on him. Well, what about this verse and this verse? And then he's answering the question. So there's this whole dialogue going on. But this shouldn't be so amazing to them. And it shouldn't be so amazing to his parents. Because again, this is what God said would happen. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Wow, that's true of Jesus. Right here at 12 years old. So he's soaking all of this up, but then his parents come. And if you've ever lost your kid at the grocery store or um, at the mall or maybe at the county fair, you moms know there's a kind of panic that is unique that runs through the heart of a mom when you don't know where your child is. And you can almost feel it in Mary's voice as she says, son, why have you treated us so? Why have you done this to us? Don't you know what what you're doing to your, your poor mom and your dad? And she she continues speaking to him. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. You have to wonder if this is just the first fulfillment of Simeon's words, that a sword will pierce your own soul. It's going to be hard to be Jesus' mom. But notice how Jesus answers verse 49. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must be in my father's house. These are the earliest recorded words of Jesus, and so they must have great significance. I mean, all of God's words do, but you think about the first recorded words of Jesus, and he says, I must be in my Father's house. This indicates both his identity and his mission, those two things we must know about Jesus, that he is the Son of God and that he has come to do the Father's will. His words are not a rebuke. I think he's asking an honest question. Shouldn't they have known to look for him in the temple? Why did they have to look around? This is the first place to check if you're looking for Jesus. He is holy to the Lord. Didn't they remember dedicated, dedicating him there in this temple to serve God? The Father's house is the place where his presence dwelt, and Jesus has a relational obligation to his true Father. Jesus knows who he is, even if everybody else doesn't understand it yet. But this is also the place where instruction happened, there in the courts of the temple, and Jesus has a missional obligation as a Savior. He says, I need to learn and grow and understand all these things because this is all about me. All of these things in the Old Testament point to me. This is all about what I'm supposed to be and do as the Savior of the world. As a son to the Father, Jesus must fulfill the Father's will, which means he must know the Father's word. So while Jesus knew full well what his mission was and why he needed to be there, his parents do not yet understand, verse 50. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. It would take a while for them to get it. 
It would take a while for the disciples to get it. Jesus would have to teach them and explain it to them. But I think we have a good example here in Mary. While she doesn't fully understand, verse 51 says she treasures these things up in her heart. As she comes into contact with Jesus and hears the words of Christ, the thoughts of her heart are revealed. She is not resistant. She does not, she does not rebuke him. She is receptive, and she ponders these things up in her heart. This is now the second time Luke has told us this, that Mary is treasuring these things up in her heart. Why do you think Luke keeps pointing that out? Why do you think Luke is highlighting that Mary, while she doesn't fully understand, is treasuring these things up in her heart? I think it's because he wants us to do the same, to consider who Christ is, consider his mission, And even if you don't fully understand all the ins and outs, to ponder it and to treasure these things up, to ponder the wondrous reality that the Son of God became a man and that he came to accomplish a purpose. He came to save us. That is why he came. This section of Jesus' childhood and, 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 and his birth, all of these stories together, It ends much like the account of John the Baptist. Jesus is growing in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. He is now ready. He's standing ready to enter onto the world stage, to to step into the events of history and fulfill the task that he had been sent to accomplish, a task that has been clearly demonstrated already in Luke's gospel, a task that has been clearly defined That Jesus is the Savior, and he's been sent to provide our salvation. I must ask you this morning as we conclude, do you know him as the Savior? This is an experiential knowledge. Not just knowing about Jesus, but do you know him as Savior? Have you been saved from your sins Have you confessed your need for salvation and come to the cross acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, no one else can save you, the faith of your parents cannot save you, your good works cannot save you, only Jesus can save you? Do you know him as Savior? And if you do, Christian, believer, will you find your peace in this truth like Simeon? Lord, now your servant can depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This is the key to peace. Will you give thanks and tell others like Anna? Will you be filled with gratitude and joy and be eager to tell others about Jesus Christ and the salvation found in him? Will you treasure these things in your heart like Mary and ponder them and consider the depth and the beauty and the glory of who Christ is? Knowing Jesus requires that we understand who he is, that he is the Son of God, but it also requires that we understand his mission, why he came. He came to save us. Some will stumble over this, but others will come to know him and rejoice in this salvation. And I hope that describes you. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Such a simple truth that is probably not new for many. But Lord, it is that truth which is so central to our faith, so central to our, our life, our joy, our peace, and our obedience. 
I pray, God, that you'd give us a fresh appreciation, a fresh understanding of the mission of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would look to him as Savior. Lord, for any who don't know him today, may they see in Jesus the light that they need, the forgiveness that they need, that they would see him as the true Passover whose blood was shed so that their lives could be redeemed from death. We pray that you would be glorified, Lord Jesus, as we consider you and as we seek to give you the glory and honor you deserve as our great Savior. Amen.